Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at Banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at Banyan.com. Please subscribe follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Branches of Wisdom. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee, and I'm really delighted to be joining you today with our two special guests, I'll introduce both Alan Clements and Reverend Bodie B. Alan Clements is an author, performing artist, founder of World Dharma, and a former Buddhist monk in Burma, where he lived for nearly four years, training in Buddhist psychology and mindfulness meditation. He's the author of a number of books, including A Future to Believe in, Instinct for Freedom, A Revolution of the Spirit, The Voice of Hope, Conversations with Aung San Suu Kyi, and a new children's book, Tonight I Met a Deva, an Angel of Love. Alan's books and work have been endorsed by eight Nobel Peace Laureates, including the Dalai Lama, in addition to Dr. Vandana Shiva, Dr. Helen Caldicott, Joanna Macy, Derek Jensen, and former U.S. President Jimmy Carter, along with numerous others. Alan has been interviewed for Nightline, CBS, CBC Canada, BBC, The New York Times, Time and Newsweek magazines, and many other media sources worldwide. He has also presented to such organizations as Mikhail Gorbachev's State of the World Forum, the United Nations Association for Sa of San Francisco, and delivered a keynote at the John Ford Theatre for Amnesty International's 30th year anniversary. If you'd like to learn more about Alan, Alan Clements and his work, please visit his website at www.alanclements.com. Reverend Bodhi B is an ordained interfaith minister and teacher in the Sufi lineage of Samuel Lewis and Hazrat Inayat Khan. He is the founder and executive director of Doorway into Light, a nonprofit organization on Maui which provides conscious and compassionate care for the dying, their families and the grieving, and has been offering community educational programs and training since 2006 in the fields of awakened living and dying and the care of the dying. He has trained hundreds of doctors, nurses, hospice staff, social workers, ministers, chaplains, therapists, artists, and lay people in the spiritual, psychological, emotional, and logistical care of the dying and care of the dead, and for four years has taken dozens through a certification program 
or death doulas. Doorway into Light operates Hawaii's only nonprofit certified green funeral home and a storefront on Maui called the Death Store, an educational resource center and store providing support and counsel on a donation basis. Reverend Bodie B also hosts a weekly streaming radio show titled Death Tracks. If you'd like to learn more about him and his work, please visit either doorwayintolight.org or ipuka.org, I-P-U-K-A.org. Tonight, these two special guests are here in conversation with Banyan Books about this book, a collaboration called Facing Death, a conversation with Reverend Bodie B. It's difficult to, to summarize this book in my own words and do it justice, so I'm going to let our guests give you context for our conversation tonight. So Banyan community, please join me in a very warm welcome for Alan Clements and Reverend Bodie B. Hello and welcome to you both. Thank you for being here. An honor, definitely an honor to be here. Thank you so much for the chance. Yeah, thank you, Russ. So just to give our audience context, for those who may not know the origins of this conversation between the two of you, maybe Alan, to begin with, can you, can you give our audience context and understanding for what led to this conversation between the two of you, which you called Facing Death? I will. I'm honored to give that. In short, uh, April 2021, I was diagnosed with a fatal heart disease in Los Angeles, uh, a severely enlarged aortic aneurysm that was ready to burst with a 50-50 chance of dying any second. I canceled three surgeries, came to Hawaii to essentially get the substances to take my own life because Hawaii is one of four states with the right to die with dignity. And after a rigorous process was granted that, was in hospice, and I decided to go into deep retreat. And in that deep retreat, I transformed my grief, my despair somewhat into a radiant, beautiful state of mind using psychedelics and meditation. And from that, I met with Reverend Bodhi B because I've had a long association with knowing him but not knowing him well. And I asked the gentleman to please, if I die here, to carry for my remains and bury me. And in that process, I was so taken by the gentleman's wisdom and grace, I invited, how about we do a dialogue, a conversation where I get to talk with you and they're formed into a book called facing death. And that was some four months ago that I think that it came out. Reverend Bodhi, can you tell us a little bit about your experience of Alan coming to you with this idea and, and the creation of the book? Sure. Um, I, I've known the same thing. I've known Alan a long time, uh, mostly on the periphery of who this guy is. And we've run into each other walking on the beach and have had conversations and it cultivated a, a somewhat of a, a real connection. So then he, he shows up um, at the death store and clearly he's having what I term a near-death experience. That he somehow has broken through the aversion, denial, and avoidance that is common in the cultural sleepwalk default 
And he knows that one of the things I teach is we're going to die and we don't know when. So I'm pretty close to having a near-death experience all the time. In a, and still able to dance and goof off and lay on the couch. And also be, um, it makes, helps me be way more effective and connected in the, in the life I live with the people I live and the work I'm doing. And so then Alan and I, and I thought it was fascinating because here's a, a former Buddhist monk and what do they do? They study their mind. Um, and so I thought, well, that's a fascinating conversation, you know. And here I am, a, 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 a teacher and a minister in a Sufi lineage. And, and in our lineage, there are Buddhists and Christians and Jews and atheists, and, and, they're, and they're all welcome and they all find their way in. And so I have a lot of, and me personally, I have a lot of resonance with the Buddhist tradition. And of course, what's their central teaching? Uh, death, death and suffering, uh, the two most taboo things in the West, pretty much. So then we had a conversation and uh, Alan said, that was pretty cool. Um, let's transcribe it and uh, submit it as an article somewhere. And I was like, great, great. I want to be famous. Um, um, and then he said to me, actually, it's too good. I want to make it into a little book. And I've read the book myself and I thought, this is there's some good stuff in here. So, and then everybody I've either given the book to or who has purchased the book, everyone who has responded to me is like, wow, Bodie, that's a little jewel. And what's cool is you can read it in an hour and a half, so it's not a big commitment. So that's kind of how it all happened, Ross, and that's how we end up sitting here with you. Thank you. And it, and it is a jewel. Uh, it's a wonderful book. I recommend everyone to read it. It's one I know that I can grab off the shelf and it, read in the morning to, to remind me that I am going to die and I don't know when. And I wanted to ask more about that particular teaching uh, from both of you, maybe Reverend Bodhi, you can just tell it, give us a little more of an in-depth understanding of that teaching. And then Alan, maybe you can tell us a bit about uh, how you are approaching that teaching uh, as you're part of your living with death in this moment in time. Well, I'm a minister. So every, that's my primary focus. So that's my, that becomes my ministry. And my ministry is about bringing people to God or bringing people into their own presence of the holy and functioning from that place so that we all live in the light of God and act like it and walk, walk in the light and be of service and be useful out here. So a number of threads brought me to recognizing not just threads, but 50 years of um, spiritual practices and 10 years of where is it? Where's the truth? Who knows something? And, and uh, that all led to recognize that what happens to people when, when the, the, it breaks through. Somebody you know died. Somebody you know just got a terminal diagnosis. You just got a terminal diagnosis. Something happens to pretty much everybody. And we all know what that is. I could describe it. So I could be in a room with 150 people, and I have many times, and I've said, how many of you know you're going to die and you don't know when? Everybody raises their hand and looks at me like, what a silly question. The truth is, I don't think hardly anybody acts like that's true. Like to me, that's just another piece of factoid most people have in their heads. But the rest of their realization and embodiment and, and then how they act in their life is not at all connected to the truth that we're going to die and we don't know when. I mean, I look around, I'm a people watcher. Doesn't look to me like people are acting in that, in that, in that truth. It doesn't mean you're walking on this tight little razor edge of, oh, I'm going to die today, I'm going to die today, I'm going to... 
but I'll tell you, it brings tremendous more presence to my life uh, where I'm fully, full, I'm, I'm much more efforting at fully showing up in every moment, in every interaction with somebody in front of me. When I'm in front of somebody and I have that awareness that I may never see this person again, I'm bringing my A game, I'm bringing my heart and I'm bringing my full self to that exchange. And so my connection with people is, is, is much deeper you know, much deeper. And, and, and those are examples of that, the, that, the, that we awaken to the embodiment and realization and truth that we're going to die and we don't know when, not just as another piece of information that we then go into avoidance and aversion and denial about. It's powerful medicine, actually. Uh, I tell people, you know, when you get up in the morning, you, most everybody in the West has this sense, sense of entitlement that we deserve 80 years. And of course, we're going to wake up today. And we and consequently, we do a tremendous disservice to ourselves because we think we have more time, lots of time. So I could go on and on about that particular question and we could take up the hour on that piece, Ross. I think it's kind of the cornerstone of where things are going to go. So maybe alan i as you know you've been studying buddhism practicing buddhism seriously for most of your life and um this teaching probably is there in buddhism in, in different languaging i'm wondering um if if it in this particular languaging has had an impact for you at this time in this stage well i would this is how i encourage myself I can share from that level of intimacy. You know, having chosen to enter a monastic life, what that meant for me was learning more as a man the felt experience of my emotional landscape in the immediacy of what we call the now, which isn't just here. You might have included everywhere in all dimensions. Popular physics have told us the now isn't singular in a spot. So facing death became facing the intimacy and the emotionality of my own heart and mind and body in the context of a sacred environment, a monastery, where we were encouraged to walk slowly, to feel slowly, to sleep carefully and mindfully, to feel. And in that process, I saw a lot of the times that life and death was a momentary event. When I reflected on the world that I'm embedded in, every being, as Bodhi B says so eloquently, every being is to die. No one gets out alive. And it's created by the intimacy of the moment. Galaxies are forming and disappearing as we speak. Superstring theory has shown us dimensionality. And so for me, a lot of what I'm dealing with today in my own diagnosis and the prognosis of this aneurysm is no different than what I think women know intrinsically, the sacred divine, the feminine divine, the sacred feminine, to feel without objectification, pushing away, and live in the most radiant, open-heartedness, as Bodhivija just said, of being in the most full presence with yourself and who you're with in the context that you're living. And I know it sounds a little bit cliched, but the sentence, so to speak, of the immediacy of death based upon a prognosis by the medical community impacted me for several months and still does. But for the most part, when I'm gathering my heart in emotions, it's about the quality of communion with myself when I walk, talk, sleep, 
rest in primarily in context with those few people, the goddesses and gods, the men and women that I choose to associate with. And what am I doing there that enacts my dignity, my integrity, my purpose, my immediacy, as Bodhi B said, this could be the first and last encounter with this person and yourself. And I'll end here in a monastery, not unlike what I'm saying to myself the last several months, we were encouraged not only to be mindful of the phenomena of being, but to remember deep in our heart the instinctual, intuitive truth, the wisdom truth. In breath, neither wish to live nor fear dying, feel the landscape of an unvarnished presence. And I will say to Bodhi Bree's credit, he's very much helped me, and it's very much throughout the book we've co-authored, to include and include and include that too, which as a Buddhist, normally it's an exchange of overcoming, a very patriarchal model, whereas from what I'm feeling more in the, the feminine school of the sacred, and I gather from Bodhi as well in the Sufi school, the capacity to include and not vilify or divide the soul or the heart by making things good and bad, especially despair or anxiety and more intimately the process of grieving. So in other words, the artful practice of saturation, just pure feeling and trying to sanctify that on the terms of your own integrity, your uniqueness, I would call it your own feminine wisdom. Thank you. It, it reminds me of, of one of the sort of key moments I feel like in the conversation in this book, one of many key moments is when you're discussing the sort of um, holding of the paradox of ultimate reality and relative reality. And Reverend Bodhi, you talk about, um, uh, you know, having, so I think you might've used the term extinguished the idea of both uh, as being separate things. And I'm wondering if you can give us some pointers around, you know, um, holding this paradox of the idea of death being a very real thing in relative reality and in ultimate reality, it being the reality of no death. How do we how do we approach that in a very uh, skillful way in our own lives? Well, there's a there's a great question. Um, people come up to me and go, "Don't you know there's no death?" I go, "Absolutely." I, I I actually I know that more and more. But what I know completely viscerally is that there is death, and I see it, and I'm around it, and I know what it looks like, and I know what happens. Uh, so they're both. They're both uh, exactly true, and and no, I no longer. I used to think the absolute reality was any more true or real than the relative reality, and I, I, now I don't see anyone as being more real or more truthful or a higher realization. Um, uh, to me, to me, the most awakened state is is full of grief and brokenheartedness, and and uh, the spiritual override notion that if we were spiritually enough, we we wouldn't we wouldn't get sad. And I think we've done a tremendous service to uh, us as the people who've uh, taken that to, uh, you know, as some kind of belief or concept. And it's, to me, it's nonsense. You know, even the notion of I'm not my body, which I thought for a long time, I'm not my body. When I die, I leave my body. Um, my experience now is that the holiness is present in every square inch of space. 
including everything inside of me, including all my cells and my blood and my bones. So why would I say I'm everything and then disown this beautiful uh, temple being that is me, that is the way the holiness expresses itself through this personality, through this ego, you know? So now I just say, I'm not just my body. And you know, when we go to pick up a, a, a body at a home, someone who's died, oftentimes the first question I ask the family is, is that Robert or is that Robert's body? And I get, I don't always get the same answer. And I absolutely respect and, and totally honor and get that both of those can be true. So, you know, you ask, you ask a big question. I don't even remember where it started because, um, you know, you know, oh, I know where I want to go with that. You know, in caring for a dying person, how do you, how do you, how do you hold both those truths that there is death and there is no death? Right. And, I, and this is a big piece I teach about because on the surface, here's this story playing out. Somebody is dying. Somebody is having a, maybe a really difficult time, full of suffering, maybe tremendous amount of pain. Right. How do you how do you respond to that? And at the same time, recognize that someone's inside of a burning house that's burning down, but they're in there. And they're and whether they they're connected to what's in there or not, if you're connected to that in you, you can connect to that in that person and help that person make a connection to that place that's sitting back there waiting for somebody to see them as something other than a dying person. You get that? So that's one of the rubber meets the road places. You know, how do you work in both those worlds? You know, I'm, I, I lead memorials now, and some of them are absolutely tragic, absolutely horrific, and. I don't know. I don't know why things happen. You know, I don't know what levels are playing out or, or why that guy on the bicycle met that guy in the truck at that very moment, uh, you know, after who knows how many lifetimes of who knows. But I don't I don't override the fact that, man, we, this sucks. And when I get it, why all of our hearts are on the ground and and I want to support everyone right near to here to mourn together. You know, I, again, I could take this, I get often asked to lead a celebration of life. To me, a celebration of life is what we just did for a friend before he died. People got up and just appreciated and acknowledged and just loved him, right? At a memorial, celebration of life, even the, even the, the words, a celebration of life, were there because somebody died or whatever you want to call it. And so we kind of, again, go into a, some level of aversion, denial, and avoidance to just jump to the celebration of life and not recognize what we're all experiencing in the space and what happened to us when we found out our friend died and, and how it touched our own mortality and how it touches the, uh, the grief that is deep inside so many of us and ignites it a little bit and on and on, right? Thank you. Alan, that, that reminds me that I wanted to ask you, you specified early in the book that you had asked Reverend Bodhi to care for your body if you, if you did die while you were still on Maui. And you had specified that there would be no memorial. Is there anything, is there, is there any reason behind that that you want to share that, that we could hear? Just trying to save fossil fuel consumption with family and friends flying out here from all over the world. And uh, I'm not one for, I guess I could be seen as a hypocrite and someone in denial about this comment, but not wanting to call attention to myself. <laughs> Although I do theater and spoken word and obsess over how insecure I am and hide from it. 
but it just seemed easier for everyone. And it also supported me in, you know, and again, coming back to Bodhi B, has been very helpful with this in so many ways. Saying and feeling and being the way you want to be now. Unhinged intimacy, presence, authenticity. You know, I dare even use the word fearless, but authenticity with fear that has courage associated with it. And so at the end of the day, Alan's already said it. We don't have to have it again, you know. So I want to make peace and love with everyone in my life, including enemies or people I've hurt. I don't want to wait for the memorial. I want to just basically be a quiet departure. And so sort of an answer, I hope. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I don't know Alan that well. Maybe he's afraid nobody's going to show up. You know, I don't know. I don't know, right? When I, when I, um, when I lead a memorial ceremony or a funeral, funeral means the body's present. Um, there, I, I want people to recognize there's a number of reasons why we have a memorial. One, the dying person might actually need our help. And certainly, even if the dying person, the whole thing was five star, would love to hear from us and love our prayers and our blessings. Then we're here for any family members that are really having a hard time because uh, family members are often having a much harder time than everybody else. So we're there to show support for the family and, 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 and hold that family. In that, plan. I'll, I'll change it in the will to a virtual one then. And then, the, and then the third reason is for all of us, because again, when we're at a memorial, to one degree or another, we're all having what I call the near-death experience. We all of a sudden, death has broken through the mire of information and pierced our armor of protection for our sensitive beings, and something has touched us, and that's why we're at this memorial. And everybody's in that space, and that's a very potent space for everyone to shift, turn the steering wheel a half an inch, and end up in a completely different place. It's a very potent place, right? It's about death, and, and that's the biggest taboo thing there is. And so to focus on it together in community, where we acknowledge together what we're feeling and what we're going through, tremendously potent. I love being asked to lead memorials and funerals. I get asked to lead a wedding now, which I used to lead. I used to facilitate a lot of weddings and a wedding's kind of a, this is fun cruise thing compared to holding the space of, of 400 people after their favorite friend and chiropractor got run over on his bicycle, for example, and his beautiful wife and three daughters are right there uh, crying away. And then, you know, what a powerful path. You know, I, I pray about it myself. You know, please, God, please, holiness. I, I can't do this without your help here. And um, yeah, and basically, it's about being real <clears throat> and helping everybody get real about what's really up and break through this cultural sleepwalk and denial and aversion and avoidance that is built in. I was talking the other day, and I recorded something about, well, how did death turn into the bad guy? You know, it's had such lousy PR for so long. You know, how did that come about? You know, you, you think people that grew up in nature saw death everywhere. So it just made sense. And I don't know what happened. We moved to the cities and we don't see the stars and we don't see animals or farms. And, and now de death we see is people on the street. And um, then the religions, of course, have used it to their benefit uh, to frighten us and control us. You know, again, I could go on and on about 
all of the threads that play into how death became the bad guy. You know, you know, even Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's thing is her fourth stage on her process, which I don't really subscribe to, is about acceptance. Can't we get to the next stage of loving the truth that death, death is part of the story, that a healthy life includes its death? That when Albert Einstein said it's either all a miracle or none of it's a miracle, that it was a choice, and I've tried both of those, and life is way more fun to adapt that life is it's all a miracle. So is death part of the miracle? That's interesting you bring that up. I'll, you know, post-monastic life, both, uh, it led me to a more provocative choice-making behavior to be in more complex contexts. I was terrified of America before I left and became a monk. I left Los Angeles where I was just dealing with multiple addictions and disconnect, successful as I was in an artist. Post-monastic life, I had a grace period of several years leading retreats that were asked of me, but I have to be very frank about that. It led me to a kind of double life. I've written about it in books, even at times a triple life. And I was teaching things and saying things that were different than how I was living. And I had the good sense in therapy and friends, and I was in MDMA therapy at the time, and began to point that out in me. And I stopped all teaching. And the point of it is here is that I went into, unbeknownst to me, areas of extreme conflict, war zones, and areas of genocide. As many people know, Burma became the killing fields of South Asia after Pol Pot in Cambodia. My first book in 1989 was called Burma, the Next Killing Fields. And that was after several months in these apocalyptic jungles near Thailand, firsthand witnessing death and genocide and rape up close. And it broke my heart to see these types of situations. That led me to Bosnia during the war and Yugoslavia and Croatia during their three-way genocide. And by way of saying that, to state the obvious, death is everywhere. But very few of us really recognized that on this planet, the forms of death, the forms of suffering are so complex. I've seen entire villages with heads cut off and put on stakes by the Burmese military. And today, 2022, Burma is undergoing another genocide of the democracy movement. And by and large- Alan, Alan, don't wander off now. Please. <laughs> if Roth isn't gonna ask you to come back, I will, okay? Not, not, not when I'm talking about one of my best friends, and I'll stop in 30 seconds, I promise. But Burma is largely lost with Aung San Suu Kyi and hard labor and thousands of other civilian democratic leaders essentially undergoing death and rape and starvation in the prisons. By way of saying that, yes, we're all going to die. We don't know when. But at the same time, you may not know how you're going to die. And so there's a lot to be unpacked in this issue of mortality, death, suffering, and discontinuity. And I would encourage everyone in the spiritual world, not only live your dream, but live in greater compassion and empathy. Take risks. I'll say one more thing though about Alan's memorial or no memorial, because people are gonna to wanna to gather for some connection when Alan dies. People, have, people who love Alan, people who care for Alan are gonna to wanna to have community time to be together. I would bet that's true. Well, 
Bodhi thank you for speaking up for my depth of being. You know, one of my hesitations is I have not lived in a community outside of a monastery and briefly in Vancouver because of my daughter. And I've traveled the world for nearly 40 years. It's, it's drawing upon a colossal economic footprint for people to make that decision to come to Maui. So I'm all over a modest memorial. I'll put in my will. At the same time, really encourage people, save your money, save the fossil fuels, save the future of the earth, stay at home and watch it on video. Uh, put that in your will, Alan, that you, you, you're, you're open to having a memorial, but not for anybody that gets on an airplane. There you go. Thank you for being so concise, Cody. You know, this, this brings me to a question about the, the question of what's left undone that comes up in the book. Um, and Alan, it's very clear uh, in the book and what you're saying now that when you reflected on your life, you asked, you know, well, now what? I, you know, you're, you're living with the knowledge that you could die any day. Um, and you, you asked this question, now what? And you said, you know, it's not, you didn't live a life where you left all sorts of things undone that you wanted to accomplish or, you know, where you had all these a massive relationships behind you that were unresolved. But what it seems like is that it's really important to you to leave some kind of a legacy that will contribute to some kind of restoration of the planet, some sort of understanding about how we need to go forward for generations to come. Can you speak a little bit to that? I will, thank you. It's a very intimate question. It's felt on a very intimate level in my body. You know, um, the last book, or it may have been just before Facing Death, was a book I wrote for my daughter, for the children and for the future of life on our planet, called Tonight I Met a Deva, an Angel of Love. And I was blessed by the His Holiness the Dalai Lama that he wrote a forward to it. I have this very deep feeling in my heart for the, the embryo in all of life that's birthing, rebirthing, the children, the animals, the trees, what Bodhi B said so eloquently earlier, just every part of this ambient world and this ecosystem of consciousness and biology and heart and flesh and fluids and ocean and light, and, you know, just feeling this deep interrelated largeness. Um, I really feel that for me, a large part of my raison d'etre, my real reason to be has been cultivating something off of my own process alone, which led me down the open-hearted road of a more inclusive dharma, of compassion, of empathy, not that I'm very good at it, but also about relationship and interrelatedness, which are founded very intimately in Desmond Tutu, who introduced me to the concept Ubuntu. I use the phrase eroticized Ubuntu. I cannot be who I am without you. Your freedom and mine are interconnected. And that means the future of life in all dimensions, in all places. And so it's one thing to do your own life and to live authentically and to be mindful of the moment and the way that you interpret the word, but at the same time, co-relating to the multidimensionality of this ambient mysterious now called totality and see that life is not about death alone. It's about rebirthing the phenomenology of conditions and contextual change. And how well do I live in that change by living in the qualities that you aspire 
to be known for in your memorial, love, compassion, authenticity. I hope that touches a little bit of your question. I'm not sure. It does. Thank you. And I just want to remind our live audience that we're going to be getting to as many of your questions for Alan and Reverend Bodhi towards the last 15 minutes. So please share your questions in the chat and, and we'll address those when the time comes. One of the really important things at the crux of this conversation is you, Reverend Bodhi B, in the book, you continuously bring it back to the power uh, and beauty of grief, of the process of grieving, um, to the point where Alan actually at some point asks you, he says, do you sense that I'm in denial of grieving? And so I'm just curious uh, um, to hear from both of you on this one. Maybe first, Reverend Bodhi, you can, you can talk a little bit about the process of grieving. You call it the twin sister of love, love and grief as these twin sisters. So maybe you can comment. And then Alan, I have a follow-up question for you, actually. Sure. Well, it shows up in the book. Um, Alan starts to what I felt to be ranting about a, a number of large issues in the world and that he's very passionate about. And I, I stopped him, I think, and said, well, I know, I know what I said. I said, that's, your, that's grief expressing itself right now. And that kind of like, I think it really stopped Alan. And, uh, and I think he's, he's thought about that and considered that and felt with that quite a bit since then. And, and certainly we just heard it in this hour together. Uh, and, you, and you imagine some of those images he described about heads on sticks and, and what he saw. And of course, that's trauma stored in his body and, and, and grieving. And that's very much about grieving. And what are we grieving? What we love and care about and what we loved and cared about that disappeared, got run over. And it's clear love and grief are inseparable, really. Everybody and everything we love now, we're going to say goodbye to, either because we're going to leave the scene or they are or that is. And, of course, now we're witnessing on a global uh, size where uh, most of us are looking like, wow, this something's happening. And, we, and maybe we're hitting critical mass and it's going to blow. Or on some level, it already is blowing and we're recognizing it. Uh, but most of us are doing the hardest we can to hold on to some level of it's going to be all right. It'll go back to normal, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, when Alan came to me and he told me about his prognosis and his heart disease, I did, I, it didn't make me think he was going to die before me. I mean, that's the work I live in. And, and I have one of my best oldest friends in the refrigerator in the other room. Uh, so I'm seeing my friends die. And um, most of us now have seen our parents die or are dying. And it gets more and more real. And being running a funeral home, I mean, that's rubber meets the road big time. So what was I talking about? Well, you, we were talking about about grief and the reality. Yeah, grief, yes. grief, grief, grief. And and I, I I would never tell somebody to get over it. And mm. I I take I actually I subscribe to the opposite of approach that you turn it into this precious jewel that you hold in your heart. I think it was Stephen Levine said maybe the biggest spiritual work we do is how to live with a broken heart. I mean, everybody who's had a broken heart at least once has been shaped by that in ways that help develop who they are today. You know, that's the whole teaching I do about suffering. We have such a negative attitude about suffering, but the suffering times are when we most had to shift out of our plateau or our comfort zone and become something bigger than what we were. 
And over and over again, that's what helps develop and cultivate who we are. Um, you know, um, what Alan described is the, in my, what I heard was what an awakened life looks like and is, and is experienced as, right? Not some enlightened state and then you're there, right? It's an ever ongoing process. So that's where I bring the, that for me, not only in working with my hands in this whole caring for dying people, teaching people how to die, teaching people how to care for dying people, teaching how to, people how to care for dead people. There's this whole notion of, again, we come back to my ministry. Why do I want people to wake up to the holiness itself? That's what's going to be the quickest way to shift consciousness on the, on the planet, to change the story that is playing out. Because now we just need to have this shift. And, and I, again, I say, I say I haven't seen anything help us personally shift quicker than a close encounter with death. So grief, man, it's just right there. I mean, somebody says, well, it's an emotion. I said, no, it's not an emotion. Uh, it may show up as emotions. Uh, what would you say about love? Could you define that in one word? Oh, it's an emotion. Of course not. I mean, love is even, you can't, you try to put your arms around it. It's like God. It's just a, it's a placeholder word. Just like God is a placeholder word for something that's bigger than any one word. It's holding a place that maybe we can all recognize there's something. And the same with love. Love is so much bigger than, right, you know, tell me what love is. I, I could tell you how I feel in, in, in being in love. You know, it's the same with grief. Grief's not an emotion. And uh, grief, grief is love. Grief is the twin sister of love. And I see it over and over and over again. And I, and I encourage people. And people are like, oh, I, I'm not doing it right. Uh, must be something wrong. Of course, we're in a... a, a in a, a excel everybody in this culture has to do everything really good so you must be you know i don't want to be grieving wrong or i'm not grieving you know and when how come i'm not over it and i'm and uh, oh, why my friends think i ought to go see somebody well oftentimes your friends want you to go see somebody because they're uncomfortable being around grief which often triggers their own untouched grief and on and on and on and uh, you know you, there are cultures where somebody walks around in black forever and it's kind of a powerful um, teaching. It's like you see a Buddhist monk walking around the street. It's, you know, it, it, it's, it's standing, it's a again, a placeholder for something. And you see these old limp women that have, have ever, after their husband died, they're in black forever. And they might not be miserable people at all, but they become placeholders that death is present. Death is present, right? Just that's what I do in, in my community here. I'm a placeholder that death is present in the community. Not that it's more present now because of COVID. It was always absolutely right here, but now maybe we were paying a little more attention to it. Thank you. Alan, I, I'm wondering, how has your relationship with grief and the process of grieving changed <laughs> now that you are in some way, for lack of a better word, closer to death? You're asking me to count the millimeters in a million years or something. It's so overwhelming to evaluate depth or quality. As Bodhi B said, he catalyzed a very crucial, important moment for me in my life. He opened up the spectrum of love to include the language of grief the language of anxiety, distress, uncertainty, vulnerability, all of which could easily be seen as cliched, me saying that. But as a result of my 
aging and prognosis and my interpretation of that, my relationship with Burma, my daughter, uh, past lovers, family, the memory of my mom and dad, people near to me and beloved to me recently in Vancouver, in Bali, it, it all has deep emotional impact. And it comes back to this issue of the immediacy of an intimate present willingness to engage self and other with the most radiant sacred willingness to see that grieving is loving. People ask me all the time, what does it mean to have this prognosis? They often tell me what I should feel. It's very hard not to respond in a more satirical way. And my last point, which is not my last point, but I wanna be very transparent that in the book I touch briefly, but more recently, I say over the last year, I've been experimenting with micro and low doses of psychedelics. I recently went to a premiere of a show in Vancouver called Dosed Two, where the woman was evangelical Christian who was diagnosed with colon cancer, then breast cancer, and she experimented with psilocybin. Well, although I've done large doses since I was a teenager, I've experimented three, four, five times a week with microdosing the psychedelic, walking near naked on Baldwin Beach, and what I call behind Baby Beach Deer Park, and really feeling light and nature, the mongies, the sea turtles, and crying and weeping and craving and screaming and loving with all of my heart. And I feel at times, to be quite honest, it's hard to find the Alan who would die. It's hard to find the Alan who has a history. It's hard to find anything but true intimate abiding in this totality. And sometimes I've stopped and I'll be there tomorrow again, where I just feel the infinite molecules of the water, the infinite light seven miles high, the rainbows, the wind, the sand beneath my feet, the biology, neurology in my mind and body. And I go, yes, just be the most radiant, beautiful self that you can be in breath, out breath, and keep on walking, keep on never giving up. As my best friend who died, Robert Chardoff, who did all the Rocky movies, Alan, never give up. I married he and his wife. Never give up, no matter how down you are. Keep on keeping on. Keep on feeling. Expand, include, co-create. And grieving is now in my repertoire, thanks to Bodhi B, of colors on the palette of my heart that I'm being more inclusive of. And I think I'm opening based on the good support of people I've met and a particular person I've met recently of embodying more of my sacred divine feminine, which I would say is at the root of a more open-hearted mindfulness. Thank you. You know, touching on the psychedelic side of things, um, you talk about it a fair bit in the book and, and Reverend Bodhi, at one point, you know, you don't say too much, but it seems like you might have some questions about the use of psychedelics um, or maybe that's just in, in that particular moment in the conversation. I'm just curious on your outlook, your experience with it as a helper for people as they're approaching death. Yeah, uh, I could, I could, I could spend quite a bit of time on this piece and I am actually someone who does work with people who are dying or, or family members of people who are dying and psychedelics. That is something I am engaged in. On the other hand, uh, and there is another hand, we're a pill popping culture 
who doesn't believe in the dying part and certainly doesn't believe in grief. And uh, most often why people uh, approach me or the stuff I've looked at online or people are in anxiety, people are in fear and dread, right? And so in a sense, the, the uh, psychedelic is to help people break through. And, and oftentimes there are people who have not cultivated an actual spiritual practice or, or engaged in a spiritual tradition that actually works for them. So um, when you combine that with people don't want to do the dying part, and people are very uncomfortable grieving. Uh, we've grown up taking a pill for everything. Now there's a pill in the manual for grieving, this medicine for that. Uh, where the, the notion of taking pills when you're dying or when you're grieving, it's just a natural evolution of what we've become in terms of taking a substance to change our consciousness. And oftentimes that's appropriate, but oftentimes it doesn't get to the root of why is somebody in anxiety? And I remember going to a hospice meeting. I was part of this um, consulting group and they were talking about the medicine they gave to this person who was dying, who was in depression, but not one of those people in that circle asked what the depression was about or, you know, inquired in terms of helping illuminate what that was about. Instead, let's give you a medicine and psychedelics are not those kind of medicines that suppress the anxiety or make you not feel the anxiety uh, oftentimes they help you break through so you're uh, you 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 have an awakened experience that you are much bigger than what's happening to your body and oftentimes that brings tremendous comfort and relief um, and of course we're addicted to being comfortable uh, uncomfortable nobody wants to be uncomfortable although oftentimes exactly where the work is is in those uncomfortable zones. So I, I go back and forth with it and look at where it, it feels appropriate and where it's in alignment with my truth. And we'll go to it and, and offer that to people and sit with people um, on, on some psychoactive medicine and other times um, something else. I'd like to emphasize, if I can, a final point for me. I pretty much agree with Bodhi B and a lot of people actually who are commenting similarly to what I heard him say. This is why I'm very diligent about low dosing and micro dosing these substances. So there isn't a reliance on the substance creating the experience. My Dharma practice, my meditative intelligent practice supersedes the substance. And as Alan Watts said, when you get the message, you hang up the phone. And so there'd be lots of times when there was nothing being used. And I would find equal luminosity and then play creatively with smaller and smaller doses and primarily live and breathe somewhat naked if I can. One of the benefits of being in Hawaii in nature and the radiance of light and just really playing mindfully and intimately within the realm of your own unique expression of a spiritual, I dare use the word spiritual, psychological, emotional presence, not so much a practice, a presence to include. And I really want to emphasize my practice, my, my method today is to include, feel, know, evolve, and creatively expand, whatever it may be. Grief, fear, love, kindness, empathy, the palette of different emotions, different states of mind. How do I engage them using very low doses of psychedelics occasionally so there's not a reliance on the big experience to transform the anxiety? 
there has been no big experience I've seen, even with the most practiced monks in nuns in Burma, where they transform and obliterate grief, anger, fear. It's there and it's going to be there, as Bodhi B says so well. It's going to be there until, well, we all know we're going to die, but we don't know when. So include, feel, saturate, evolve, create your emotional, psychic body. Thank you. Now, this actually leads us into a good question from someone in our audience named Sarah. Uh, we've touched on the psychedelic side of things. Sarah's question is, are there rituals around death and grieving that you have found to be especially useful that perhaps attendees mm -hmm. could integrate into our own lives? I lead grief rituals. Um, and it's a very simple... Uh, poignant um, and very powerful and and nobody's required to do anything but again we're talking about what happens when community gathers you know if we only get together when we having a good time and we want to party and celebrate something we're not really cultivating what deep community really means so when we gather in community and community could be three people and it could be a hundred people to touch on um, where it's hurting for example, and we bear witness and we fully listen and hold space and bear witness for somebody to speak their truth, knowing that they are actually being listened to and being honored and respected and blessed and not judged or opinionated. That is powerful. So that's one answer to your question. The other answer is to like I'm, I'm out there proponent as a proponent of uh, if you're not grieving, you're not paying attention. Uh, I mean, that's just on what, what's happening in the world. Never mind on the political scene or the economic scene or the poverty or the Burma or the you know on and on and on or what's in Florida today, et cetera, et cetera, right? And not to not to mention our own personal grief over loss. We've never been given permission either by others or by ourselves to grieve and honor what, what the feelings we have in having lost something or someone. Then there's then you bring in ancestral grief that never got grieved. And there's a lot of, lot of story out there that says we have to grieve that. And of course, the way it's playing out now in part is this whole notion of do we teach critical race theory, which has to be told, right? There has to be this whole blah. We have to come clean around the whole thing and all now the resistance to coming clean about it. But of course, that's where the real healing is in the truth telling and owning up to all of it. That we wiped out all the forests, then we wiped out all the natives. Then we brought in other natives to do all the work for us. You know, on and the whole, the, uh, we're all grieving that. I mean, for a long time, I, you know, I, I, was, I felt how I was grieving uh, being a man because so much that's happened in the world has been perpetrated. All the rape and pillage has predominantly happened by men. And I felt tremendous shame. And, and the difference between shame and grief is that grief is an empowering place to be. Shame is a very disempowering place to be. And I had to recognize that grief was where I wanted to be with it. And so I grieve not only what men have done, but white men and then I grieve about being a human and what humans have done to the rest of creation that has at least as much right to be here as we are and how much space has to get out of the way for us to do what we're doing and, and what we are doing. So, you know, the, the grief thing is like, 
wow, there's so much power and empowerment and community building in that. So I think I touched on your question. Definitely. Would you, do you have anything to add to that at all, Alan? Um, wow. I've seen memorials and rituals in apocalyptic jungles where people reflect and become empowered on a more courageous willingness to engage the so-called enemy with fearless revolutionary fight. I've seen my teacher, Seda Upandita, lead a ritual for my preceptor as a monk, the late Venerable Mahasi Seda, one of the first people to bring mindfulness out of the monastic form and teach it worldwide. A quarter of a million people gathered where he was being cremated in Rangoon. And we sat in silence. And after about 20 or 30 minutes, encouraged to feel our own breath, every breath, there's no guarantee there'll be another in-breath or an out-breath. Really feel this, what they call in Buddhism, anicca, the impermanence, the sea of evanescence. And he, at the end, he just simply chanted a very ancient line from attributed to the Buddha, he goes, Anicca Vata Sankara, Upadavaya Damino, Upatichuwa Nirujanti, Tesambu Pasamo Sukho. And they repeated that three times, and it simply means the most complex truth that's in our heart and face all the time. All things in this totality that were embedded is conditioned and subject to change, impermanence. Try to hold on to it and you will suffer. And there's a very fine line there between engagement and reality. And that's what Bodhi B was talking about earlier, about really minimizing that gap and creating that holiness that he spoke about so beautifully. And so the audience for five minutes chanted, we see that all things change in this totality that we're embedded. To understand that truth on a felt level is to live in the highest authenticity, wisdom, and I dare use the word, happiness and that was the ceremony that was the ritual and everyone went home and continued the wisdom in their own unique way thank you we're just getting to the end of our time here i want to remind everybody we've been speaking with alan clements and reverend Bodhi b about their book their conversation together called Facing Death, a conversation with Reverend Bodhi B. Of course, it's available on our website, banyan.com, uh, or you can visit Banyan in person any day of the week in Vancouver, BC. A huge we've, got it, we've, got it, we've got it available at our store right here at the Death Store. So come on over to Maui, check out what we're doing. Uh, you can actually uh, get me and Alan to sit down and talk to each other. We have fun doing that. But come to Maui, Mike. The books are right here in our little store. Wonderful. Any any closing thoughts from either of you before we say our goodbyes? I could share something short. Um, you know, of all this so-called practices available, from mindfulness to chanting to meditation to mindfulness, to yoga. I've never seen anything more dynamic than, than abiding in the natural authenticity of your own being on the terms of your own integrity 
and to unshackle yourself from systems that are so easily concretized by words. Words, obviously, are not the same as breathing oxygen. And it took me nearly 20 years of ardent, intensive, silent meditation that the whole deal wasn't to be mindful of my breath and my body and sound and food alone. It was to see that every breath could be my first and last. And eventually, after nearly two decades, the insight was, what will you do with the preciousness of this full breath? Not necessarily the mindfulness of it. So that to me is a very impassioned, evolving understanding, no matter what. What will I do, what Bodhi B said earlier, the preciousness of this moment and the preciousness of this communion with, with both of you in our audience. And that's, that's not the takeaway for me. That is the totality of it all. Can't, can't we go on for another hour? I would love that. I'll, Bodhi, we'll, I'll organize it. We'll do it again. Hey, uh, one, of, one of my teachers said to me, just, he's probably said it to a lot of people, there's two kinds of laziness. In the East, where the, uh, the men sit around gossiping and drinking tea and while the women do the work, that's, that's what he called Eastern laziness. He said Western laziness is where everybody's so busy doing all the important stuff that they never get to the really important stuff. So how do we shake ourselves into what's most important? Well, I have seen, uh, again, a close encounter with death is, does it pretty quickly because we all need to be focusing on what's most important right now in, 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 in our relationships, in our relationship to the planet, in, in, the, in our relationship to our grandchildren and their grandchildren. And, and you know, most people are either leaning forward into what's next, what's next, what's next, or people are leaning backward into being at the scene of the crash. I'm a victim from what happened back then. That's why I'm like this. And very few people, it seems, really just want to stop and come to the truth of what they're feeling about their life and what they're doing with their life and their marriage and what's, what's going on. Maybe it's too painful for too many people or they've been too conditioned that, of course, in America, the predominant wound is I'm not good enough. That's that we were conditioned in by uh, you won't be good enough to you buy this or go there or have this much money, et cetera, et cetera. That's the primary. Well, I say that's the secondary wound because the Sufis would say the primary wound is, is our separation from the holy, that we think somehow we're not part of the holy. And that's the core wound. And I like what Joanna Macy said. She said the, 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 the great turning, to be part of the great turning is to, one, be part of the group of people that are saying, stop, you can't do this. And those are the people like Greenpeace or people laying on the tracks so the nuclear rate stuff can't go on the train any further, right? Those are the stop people, Occupy Wall Street, where the stop. Then there's another group of people that are implementing the healing, sustainable, regenerative technologies, the school systems, how we make energy, on and on and on. That's the other group of already implementing the new healing story that we're all trying to bring forth in a big way. And the third piece is shifting consciousness itself. And I would say I'm engaged mostly in that one, not completely in that one. But to me, that again, and death becomes a perfect vehicle for how do we shift consciousness quickly at a time when it needs to shift quickly. So I'll tell you when, like I said, when people have a near-death experience because they themselves have a diagnosis or somebody just died, 
almost always they're brought back to that center of what's most important. What am I doing with my life? And why do people come to me now and said, I had a career and now I want to, I want to find, I want to find what's calling me where my passion is and where I could be of use in the world at this time. And that's partly the age of some of these people. And it's partly because the times itself is calling us to step up or get out of the way. Beautiful. Thanks so much to you both for taking the time to speak with us. It's been really an honor and um, uh, look forward to the possibility of connecting again in the future. Beautiful. Facing death uh, revisited. Yes. Facing death over and over. <laughs> you, can, you can see why I chose to have a conversation with the Reverend. This book is primarily a way to illuminate this man's amazing work at the death store and in his life on many, many different cities now. And may it proliferate uh, around the globe for generations to come. Thank you. And thank everyone at Banyan. And from my heart to all of the listeners, thank you for being a part of this process and my life as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Big thank you all the way. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom. Our producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com. <laughs>